Hi and welcome to the Msingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And here we unpack how the church, as the body of Christ and institution, can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. Karibuni sana to this episode of Singi, this uh, podcast hosted by Singi Trust. My name is Kongana, founder and uh, and executive director of Singi, Singi Trust, where we make connections between faith, justice, and advocacy. Today, I'm very honored to have guests from um, Hilton all about himself, Robert Ford, and he is an interesting guest to have. So many stories, so many projects he's done, and much to learn from each other about correlation between, um, I'm always confused, is it English, Britain, you can tell us the difference between England and Britain and all that, but he, he works for the BBC, and uh, he works a lot in media. Yeah, Rob Karibu, and and let me let's hear more about you. Well, thank you for inviting me on the show. I actually wear three hats. My day job is mm-hmm. as an academic. I currently work as professor of theology at the Queen's Ecumenical Foundation and VU University in Amsterdam. And my primary role in both of those institutions is developing black postgraduate students in theology and black liberation theology and other forms of black theology, womanist theology. But my second hat is as a broadcaster. Most people know me as a filmmaker, been making films with BBC Channel 4, Discovery USA since 1998, made over 20 plus films, won a couple of international awards for them as well. And the films, I guess we'll get to talk about interlock issues of race, class, gender, with theology, global issues, domestic political issues, black liberation. So mm-hmm. again, um, interacting many of the themes that interest us in both contexts. And my third hat, I actually do uh, some consultancy work in anti-racism. So I work with mm-hmm. um, public bodies and private institutions looking at what anti-racist practice looks like in real life within organizations. So it's organizational change, basically. So those are the three hats that I wear. Wow, three very full hats. So what led you to this uh, very diverse field and where would you say they connect? That's a good question. I'd say three things led me to this point. First of all, um, my upbringing. I was raised in a black Christian family and Mm -hmm. Two forces in particular coalesced to give me a sense of theology as justice, as racial justice. My mother was a um, Pentecostal Christian, you know, who did a lot of prayer and fasting and um, wanted her children to be as devout as possible. But my father was really into sport, into cricket in a big way, and um, he wanted me to play as much sport as possible. So I was always caught between church and sport growing up. But um, when I was 14, I uh, had a bit of a crisis. I signed for a professional football team, and that's what I thought I'd do for the rest of my life. But my mother started praying and fasting even more. 
And um, she prayed that God would send somebody to take me away from football and, and, and focus, help me to focus more on my academic work. And in that year at school, God sent a Marxist teacher to teach me math. And um, oh, wow. this Marxist introduced me to left-wing thinking. Um, mm -hmm. This was meant to be in the math class, you know, but we ended up talking about everything else. We talked about um, politics, Malcolm X, black liberation. Um, and and the, the upshot of it was that by the time I, um, you know, had spent a year with him, I'd lost interest in playing football and I decided that I wanted to be an academic, to be a theologian. You know? So mm -hmm. that's the first thing. It was very much, you know, my mother prayed, but God sent a Marxist. And that's one of the reasons <laughs> my, my, my academic career then was, you know, uh, shaped by connecting theology and social justice. Um, I think the second thing was recognising that very few people were going to read books th about theology in the British context. And therefore, it was important to find an alternative media to engage with as wide an audience as possible and acknowledging also that there's power in the media. So if you're a liberation theologian and you want to get things done, you should use the media to publicise, politicise and strategize, and also negotiate change with the institutions or individuals that you feel are acting in an oppressive way. So that's one of the reasons why I got into documentary filmmaking. And the, 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 the third thing I would say that, that has really um, shaped me a great deal is being in Britain. You see, because Britain, for all its uh, craziness, uh, for some of the good things is that you're in an international transatlantic post-colonial context where all nations meet, all cultures meet, a variety of political ideas meet in every urban area. And so consequently, you're always thinking um, diunitally, you're always holding two things in tension at once or making connections where there are no connections. And that kind of dynamic cultural social environment got me thinking that way theologically as well, how to connect things that aren't meant to be connected, how to think in different ways because I'm engaging with different communities. So those three things uh, really informed and shaped me. My parental, my parents, the upbringing, the need to find ways in which we can get our ideas out there, and then the kind of hybrid, multicultural, transnational, post-colonial existence that black people live within Britain, encouraging me to think about connectivity, not just on a domestic scale, but also on an international scale as well. Well, I think for, I actually got to study, I'm part of uh, a political class called, called Thomas and Political this was the first time I really engaged with Max's thought. And I find that there's a, a struggle or a fight of, of idea of ideology between Marxists and Christians and Marxists. Where would you say those two ideologies or ways of seeing the world connect or diverge? Well, I, th I think there are, I think that's a really good question. I think that um, there are points of uh, overlap, but also difference. And one difference would be that in Christianity, you have a high view of religion. You know, the belief that relig Christian religion is a force for good within the world. Whereas in contrast, although the debate is out on Marx's view of religion, Marx saw tension in, in religion. On the one hand, it could be an opiate. On the other hand, it could be something which is quite good and empowering for people. So in Marx's thought, there is this tension in terms of what religion is capable of doing. Will it empower people or become a tool for oppression, an ideological force? So there is that difference. 
I think where there is some kind of overlap is a commitment to the least of these. When Jesus in Matthew talks about heaven and what judgment is going to look like, he emphasizes that those who make it into heaven are the people who have cared for the least of these, the proletariat, we might say, using Marxist thought. So there is a commitment within Christianity to look out for people on the underside and mm-hmm. to resist tyranny, resist oppression, and to always acknowledge that power uncontested is problematic. And I think mm. that's the point at which Christianity and Marxist thought overlap. But again, there are significant differences. You know, Christianity does not necessarily promote a one-party state. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily promote a common purse always. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are points of disconnect in terms of um, some of the key ideas. But there are also, you know, as I've mentioned, points of overlap. Mm, uh, thank you for like uh, put that way because I'm always in testation because uh, of a personal question even can a Christian be a Marxist and can a Marxist be a Christian? What do you well, think? Well, there's a Christian socialist movement in in Britain, a long history, which has mm-hmm. attempted to find connections between the two, and maybe not while being dogmatic card-carrying Marxists, they have found a way of taking some of the best principles of socialism, the idea of a common good, which people Mm -hmm. find within the biblical tradition and also within socialist thought, that we should look Mm -hmm. at, not look at our own individual benefit over the group, but instead think of the group before our individual enrichment and benefit. So I think there's a commonality there. I think there's also a sense that wealth needs to be shared, that we shouldn't have inequality in society, that economic inequality is the source of all ruin, and therefore, to have societies that are as equal as possible, as we find within the European social democratic traditions, are, are normally healthier, safer, and better places to live. So I think there's that point of overlap with Christianity and, and socialist ideals there as well. I think also, in both, there is an understanding that all human beings are equal, and that yeah. equality is at the heart of both system and that systems, and that uh, to be committed to Christianity, to be a committed socialist, to be... Uh, committed to an international vision of what it means to be human, not just a domestic one. You can't do, um, uh, you know, make America great again and be part, <laughs> of, uh, you know, part of the vision that Christian yeah. socialists would see within the Bible and the socialist tradition for an international solidarity amongst the richer nations, poorer nations, or stronger nations, weaker nations. So the, the people have struggled with that and have found points of connection. But what we have to remember is that socialism, Marxism, communism, demonised within American evangelical circles. And American evangelicalism is the powerhouse of world Christianity in terms of spreading ideas across the continent of Africa, Europe, Latin America. And so, you know, if um, the major American evangelicals are saying that socialism is bad, you know, then Christian people, if they're not critical and not resistant to that idea, um, you know, fall under the spell of thinking that anything that is within socialist thought is anti-Christian, and that isn't necessarily the case. There is a tradition in Britain of Christian socialism where Christians have attempted to find points of connection, also disconnection between the Christian tradition and socialist traditions. And what they focus on are the, the understanding of what it means to be human. In the Bible, you know, the human being is, uh, is an equal, there's an equality to all humanity as part of the socialist tradition as well. Also within the biblical tradition, there's a commitment to ensure that uh, fairness 
you know, and that um, social justice, uh, everybody having what they they should have is integral to the Christian tradition. Again, we find that strong tradition within socialism as well. And then finally, you know, there's a suspicion in the Christian tradition towards wealth and power. I think you find that also within the socialist tradition. So there are points of, of connection that Christian socialists find over the course of, course of uh, um, addressing this, these, these two discourses. But also we shouldn't take this conversation outside of the wider context, which is the power that there is within American evangelicalism to define socialism mm-hmm. as being anti-Christian. And that's been part mm-hmm. of the problem with the Christian socialist movement worldwide is that they're up against a powerful machine that demonizes anything to do with socialism and doesn't look at it critically or in part, but just rejects it outright. So, you know, although there is a strong tradition within Britain, you know, it's struggled in other parts of the world because of the demonization of um, socialism. And that's actually just to follow up on because when you hear Christians and especially their concern about, especially evangelical Christians that are from America mainly, uh, who who are up in arms against um, Bernie Sanders and saying that he wants to make uh, America socialist and not looking at some of the, looking at the conversation in the Bible that most of, some of the policies that he's taking are written in the in the scriptures. That dissociation between wealth and politics and also sharing of the public goods and, um, and of the commons is present in modern day evangelical Christianity. And, and um, it's a pain to, to see especially people who should be more at the forefront of sharing wealth, of of fighting for equity, being the ones who want to hoard more and more. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point. You would expect the Christian tradition to be prophetic. And what we mean by that is speaking truth to power, um, yeah. challenging the injustice within a society and offering people hope. And I think we've got confused about what it means to be prophetic. It's instead become a form of Christian clairvoyance where people mm-hmm. are just looking to, you know, what's going to happen down the road in terms of, um, am I going to make some money? Am my family going to be okay? Rather than dealing with the socioeconomic dimension, the political dimension mm-hmm. of the prophetic. And it's really quite yeah. tragic to see that church leaders have been led astray by that and have mm-hmm. understood the prophetic voice to be just about navel gazing, you know, crystal ball gazing. Right rather than actually yes. engage fighting uh, on Christian ground for a better society, for a better community, that where there's greater equity in terms of the sharing of resources, in terms of life chances, in terms of addressing inequality in wealth and power. Yeah, and especially I feel the misunderstanding on the role of the prophetic is one that will cost a lot. Um, I don't remember whose sermon I was listening to in the the guy said that, um, and which is true of the prophets in scripture, is that they were 90% uh, agitating for justice and uh, fair representation and uh, seeking uh, for freedom of the oppressed and, ten, and 10% clairvoyancy. Yet now, I think we've, it's 19, actually it's 100% clairvoyancy. 
and as you're saying, naval gaze without an impact on the on the state and on the politics of the nation. Oh, completely, I completely. And the Hebrew Bible shows us, you know, that the vast part of the prophet's work was mm -hmm. engaging with the structures, the, the king, the mm -hmm. legal system, the economic order, which was doing wrong, uh, but not yeah. just confronting it, showing, showing what God required, the standard, and then giving the people hope, saying this is what can be accomplished, you know? But mm -hmm. that kind of prophetic work is costly, especially yes. in the modern world. It can get you in trouble. It, it could cost mm -hmm. you your life. And I think it's led to a moral crisis where there isn't the moral courage for people to be prophetic. So that's part of the problem. But also, yeah. the other side of it is people are making money out of clairvoyancy. It's, it's mm -hmm. a corruption of um, pro yeah. prophetic. And that's how many of the great uh, televangelists and megachurch pastors across the African continent make their money through clairvoyancy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's deeply problematic. But again, if people don't have an understanding of what the prophet's work entailed, particularly the 8th century prophets in the mm -hmm. Hebrew Bible, then it's easy for them to be led astray. And it's tragic. It really is tragic. In fact, it's, it's corruption of the prophetic. Mm. Yeah, and this leads me to the next question about our theology, and especially the, our understanding of theology. Granted that um, most of the theology, I don't know what theology you have in Britain, but I think we the theology we have here, I'm wondering how theology affects and influences our practice and what we do. And, um, what kind, uh, when, you're, when you're teaching the students and especially about black theology and um, I'm guessing womanist theology and um, liberation theology, theologies that I am wearing somewhere else that I actually learned about liberation theology and black theology in an African theological school mm. was a PowerPoint slide, one slide, all the three. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so as and I learned about James Cohn a year before he died. Mm. So please tell me how does our theology affect our our church services? Um, there's a conversation about from seminary to street um, and seminary sanctuary. How does our theology affect us in those three places? Well, it's a really good question. I think there's three, three ways to answer it in the time we've got. I think the first thing to recognise that my understanding of black theology is that it's a theology of liberation. And not all black theology is liberation theology, but the, the, the core of it, that most people teach and believing is liberation theology, a black liberation theology. What, what that means is believing that God in Christ was sent to earth to liberate all people from all people forms of bondage. And that bondage isn't just individual sin, but structural sin, the way in which the world works to disadvantage, disempower, and disorganize particular groups of people. So therefore, fighting against sin isn't just about your individual immorality, it's also about the immorality in the system, the way the world works, the way in which the police work, the way in which the government works, the way in which the legal system works to disadvantage and advantage other people without merit. So that's what we understand to be liberation, a holistic practice. Womanist theology brings into the mix the question of gender and intersectionality, a recognition that to 
call for liberation for the least of these has to take into consideration the social location of black women and the fact that the poorest people on the planet are black women. Therefore, if we believe in a God of liberation who is interested in the least of these, then we have to start with black women and hearing about black women's stories and their stories of faith and their desires, needs and wants and how that resonates with the biblical tradition. I think the second thing to say about this for me personally is I've tried to live it out, make the connection between faith and practice through my own work. And that's why I went into media, because I thought I could do the work of justice more effectively with a camera and with a microphone. So, for example, I made a program which is still online called The Great African Scandal, which was an attempt to which, which did the work of justice. We got compensation and policy change from corporates that were exploiting the Ghanaian cocoa uh, market. Similarly, I made films about um, reparations for slavery, which augmented and amplified the reparations movement within Britain and in the Caribbean. So for me, that message of black liberation had to be played out in terms of how I lived out my faith as a theologian by striving for social justice, for black liberation in the work that I did, not only in the classroom, but outside of the classroom as well. I think, I think the third thing, which is probably a bit more contentious, is that you know, black liberation theology has been very much Northern Hemisphere. And that's been part mm -hmm. of its problem. It's been, it has become yes. an academic discipline where people swap papers, write books, rather than struggle for justice for the least of these in the global South. And so what I've attempted to do in my work is foreground engagement with the global context, again, through media, through working with BBC World Service, where, you know, you get 60 million people listening to the programmes that you make by putting things on the Internet so that it can have as wide an audience as is humanly possible. And also being a part of political movements, we're both part of climate care project with Christian Aid. I'm also involved in projects that work uh, for criminal justice reform that are working for against anti-racism within public services. So again, connecting what I believe with practical action, either in media or in social justice campaigns, so that my faith is not disconnected then from what I believe about what God has to say and God wants us to do within the world for working for justice. Such, uh, I think, um, is a feminist organizing principle that says the, uh, the personal is political. And I only say because I consider myself as someone who's pursuing to be a public theologian, is I add that the public is political, is theological. And so if the theology that we understand or the theology that we have on our pulpits, in our, uh, in our seminaries, do not speak to the public life, to the day-to-day, -to, -day, to the politics of the day, then we are doing uh, the people a disservice. So as a Black person in Britain the, who is having conversations on issues of the global South, we are about to unpack two very heavy and, don't, and I think they deserve a whole podcast episode in themselves. But there are aspects of colonialism. There is neo-colonialism. There is um, history and the colonial Christianity. 
how do we begin to unpack this as we are talking about black theology, as we are saying that the theology of Christianity is liberative, when as Kenyans we've suffered from people who brought us Christianity. How, how do you make those, um, those connections or disconnections? How do, you, how do you enter into those conversations as someone working with the global South and from Britain and who's black? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I think, uh, you know, the first thing to say about it is that we, we, were, we, we both come from contexts that were informed by British colonial Christianity. My parents are from Jamaica, and I mm-hmm. consider myself part of the Jamaican diaspora in Britain, although I was born here and black British, I'm still part of the Jamaican diaspora. So my ancestors in the West Indies were subjected to similar forms of colonial Christianity that your people experienced in amongst British missionaries within Kenya. So I think we need to begin that. There's a, there's a Pan-African experience here that we need to engage with and, and have a dialogue about. Second thing I would say in terms of entering into discussion is I, I start by understanding colonial Christianity as corrupt. And this may be slightly nuanced in the Caribbean context compared to your context. But in the Caribbean context, it was corrupt because it told lies about God. It said, number one, that salvation was just body. It didn't have anything to do with the social world. Second, it interpreted the Bible for white people and said it was universal. And third, it was completely Afrophobic. It hated, it, it disavowed anything that was African. Those are lies told about God. God's salvation is holistic. You can't have one interpretation of the Bible and say it's universal. The biblical tradition doesn't affirm that. Interpretation doesn't affirm that. And thirdly, the disparaging of people just because of the color of their skin is again anti-Christian. So colonial Christianity, I engaged in with it saying it was, it, was, it was dishonest. And in fact, in my cultural context in the Caribbean, and using the work of Charles Long, one of the great deans of African-American uh, study religions, I see that the coming of colonial Christianity as a, an oppressive demonic force in certain cases in its interaction with enslaved people in the context of British slavery. So, so I'm I think we need to begin by by critiquing what they actually did. The second thing I think then is we have to look at reconstructing it. And in the Caribbean context, we go to slave religion. We look, we follow the lead of our African-American counterparts and we explore, like the Rastafarians did in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, explore how enslaved Africans, through their own genius, connected the remnants of African spirituality with parts of the Christian message to then develop a theology or vision of God that would free them from their enslavement. So we want to learn from that enslavement tradition of Christianity and repackage it today as a liberation theology. So in my own work, I draw heavily on some of the Christian revolts across the Caribbean in the 19th century and how these slave leaders connected faith, social justice, and insurgency because they believe that God did not want them to be in bondage. So again, I think there's a similar correlation that can take place in your context. Where do you find a spirit of liberation within the cultural context, which has resonance with the biblical context, which you can then use to construct a theology 
that is liberative, without having to import it from the African-Americans or from us black British folk, because my work initially was a correlation between Rastafari, comes out of Jamaica, and the Christian tradition. So I wanted to make sure there was a context in it, a black Christian context that I could resonate with that came out of the Caribbean and had impact and had and, and referred to the British context as well. So I think that's the second part of it, acknowledging mm-hmm. this corruption, then finding alternative sources for building yeah. something completely different. But this is the narrow path, you see, because mm-hmm. if the Americans are still paying your bills, if you're a church leader, if you're still reliant on missionary organisations, you know, then it's kind of difficult to critique them and uh, and move in a different direction. And, and that's part of the Christian neo-colonialism, the way in which yeah. missionary money, evangelical money, still calls the shots. But that has to be undone. It's part of a liberatory project, undoing the way in which colonial Christianity continues to impact us and continues to control us, but through these new forms of tactics, through church money, through church alliances, through theological ideas that still enslave us. I've actually, you're saying this, I've just come from, uh, before we started this conversation, seeing uh, a friend's uh, funny postbook post, uh, Facebook post, and had put like a mimicking uh, Donald Trump, and they, I don't know if you've seen image with a lot of emojis, then a black Obama, then a clown, and uh, Biden. And the one of the people as he runs a project in Congo, and uh, one of his supporters has, has come to that post and said, "Do you know that most of the people who support your ministry are his supporters?" Why are you calling him a clown? And so that's actually uh, intimidation. I, this is where the conversation about missionary money comes in, that because of the American evangelical wing with uh, capital and with capitalism, they are ones who have money. And so they will control also the conditions in the churches and the institutions that they that they sponsor. So uh, you you were talking about your Jamaican background and the importance that it had in your work, and I was very excited. I had told you before, a friend of mine had sent me your Jamaican Bible before and then it was really cool after we went this together to learn that you 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 were producing were you producing mm-hmm. yeah that's right or, yeah co- co- yes. and writing the project jamaican bible remix yeah i mean yes. it's just another way of reaching a wider audience with the mm-hmm. ideas uh so once i had the opportunity to use audio culture not just visual culture but audio culture um, I got some funding from the Bible Society and from the university I was working at. And I worked with a producer and a range of artists to produce, gospel artists, to produce the Jamaican Bible Remix album. It came out in 2017. And it was really black liberation theology in gospel music. So what would gospel music sound like if we sung about a God who was a God of justice? What would it sound like if we sung about a God who, who, who isn't ashamed 
of saying that God loves people who are racialized as black, God loves African people. What would that, what would that sound like in gospel music if we celebrated the Magnificat so that we celebrated black women and affirmed what they had done for the black community and the need to respect and protect um, uh, black women within our communities and our churches and ensure that black women get every opportunity afforded to them, especially in terms of leadership within the churches. What would that look like and sound like in terms of gospel music? So we wrote 10 tracks to articulate a new sonic spirituality which affirms liberation as a central and defining theme within the Judeo-Christian tradition. Msingi is a Swahili word meaning foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 89.14. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and faith. To engage with us, visit our website www.msingitrust.org, follow us on all our social media handles at msingitrust or email us on info at msingitrust.org. I've, I've just come from listening, especially one love the social justice one and there's mm. the refrain that faith, uh, the gospel is not complete, it doesn't have uh, uh, justice. Faith that's, is not complete yeah, without justice. That's that it, was that's really it. beautiful. And yeah. uh, the magnificence with the woman mm. speaking it and honoring the voices of women, I found so beautiful and so impactful. What Thank would you, you say is the impact on uh, the people with these songs? Well, you, yeah, it's been quite on you, and even you in producing it. Well, I think I think for me it was cathartic because I got fed up with all those Hillsong type songs, and I knew that they were corrosive, particularly for Black people, because of two reasons. One, because the theology was really weak. And secondly, that um, traditionally the black church had used music to communicate theological ideas. So we were in danger if we were soaking up theological ideas by, uh, you know, like coming out of an Australian context that hadn't dealt with its own uh, genocide of Aboriginal people and Christian collusion with that um, uh, brutality. I was a little bit suspicious about the love brand rather than the justice brand in that music. So I wanted Mm. to produce something that would be an alternative for people to at least think about. Now, not all of the songs in, on the album you can sing in the church, but the idea was to present a template. How might it sound if we began to take our experience of African people and our experience of Christian people into the, into the musical arena, in the songs that we sing within, within church? Um, so it was really powerful for me because it, I felt it, it exercised the abhorrence I was feeling towards some of these new songs. In terms of going beyond the, um, you know, my, my, uh, the university context in which I made it, well, it's been used by church groups, used by um, Christian organisations to help conscientise their young people. It's used in schools, used in universities around the world to help um, students think about the relationship between faith and justice and musicality. Uh, there'll be a book out, obviously, next year, which is called Decolonizing Gospel Music, A Black British Praxis, which takes the uh, reader through the processes of inscribing 
theological ideas into music production, but also how that can have an impact on the hearer and get people to who listen to it to think about how they can change the way in which they think and do the Christian faith. Wow, I'm on cue for a copy of that book. I can't, because we've uh, been talking on Singy Talks. Uh, we had two sessions where we talked about the songs we sing mm. and how we need to sing new songs, new songs that are reflective of the of the condition that we are living in. And this would be a tool in terms of help aid that conversation. Oh, completely. I, I think that the new form of neocolonialism in Christianity mm-hmm. is in church songs. They are mm-hmm. the conduits of the colonial ideas about God. Mm-hmm. So colonialism mm-hmm. told us that God wasn't interested in our own justice. Um, mm-hmm. Yet, uh, uh, you know, and the new songs only sing about a God who's interested in what I call Christian biopolitics, the mm-hmm. um, p- p- personal piety, nothing yeah. to do with the social world, you see? So the songs reinforce the colonial idea that God just wants to save your body, but isn't interested in who owns the land, who owns the water supply, what price okay. is the food? Um, is the criminal justice system really just? Has the president been in power too long? Is the power mm-hmm. corrupt? God's interested in all of those, those issues, and therefore so should our songs about God, because they're in the Bible. Yeah. No, the Bible's asking those questions about the price of food, about the widows, about the orphans, about the stranger in the land, the refugees, about the poor, about the corruption that leads to impoverishment, about corruption in high places, people who siphon off yeah. overseas aid into their own bank accounts. That's in the Bible. So we should be yeah. singing biblical songs that reflect the full range of ideas that there are within scripture, not just the Christian biopolitics, which white missionaries tell us we should sing about because that makes them comfortable and keeps them in power and keeps their government exploiting our people. Hmm. And and um, when you say that we should sing it, we should also teach it because most of our, our singers or of our musicians draw from what we teach pulpits. We've never, we've never, we rarely preach on justice. We um, we don't have curriculums on justice. So, why is it important to teach about justice, or for the church to be an agent of pursuing justice? I I, I can I, say yes. I yeah yeah of course of course yeah of course. I mean, I mean these are biblical issues. I mean it's not even yes. about them being outside of uh, secular issues. You know they are biblical issues, and therefore the question should be why are so many of our preachers refusing to preach a full gospel? That's mm-hmm. the question. You know, and is yeah. it moral courage? Co- lack of moral courage is it a lack of training. Is it even demonic oppression? Because mm-hmm. how can you? have a gospel, deny its full power, deny its full content, and call it the good news. It's not possible. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I, I love the, the about demonic oppression. When you say demonic oppression, we think of it only in terms of spiritual attack, principalities, and all that, but we never look at it as if it is one that denies the church role of of teaching and uh, 
and exemplifying justice. That's a that's a good that's a new take for me. I've never looked at it. So um, so there's your work with the black uh, church in in the context, and there's the work that we have here in the global south. Where do you feel there's opportunities for mutual learning and a growing holistic faith that stands for justice in the Kenyan church and in the British church? And so uh, why is it that we have, have not seen missionaries, blackberries uh, coming from both ends sharing, or is there some that already exists? And how can it be made more, uh, more obvious and more more impactful for the mm-hmm. gospel that we the gospel that we want to to teach and think, embody. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's a real challenge. Two things strike me. First of all, that we're looking at really theological institutions in Britain who are just beginning to train clergy with a black theological content in their in their trend. That's just happening now at the institution I work at, the Queen's Ecumenical Foundation. Um, I was there uh, 20 years ago when I first started teaching, and since then, it's maintained a tradition. People like Mokti Barton, Anthony Reddy, and um, also my colleague, um, Dulcie McKenzie, have been at the forefront of maintaining a black theological content within training within that institution. But that's just one institution in Britain, you know, one seminary. The British university system, most families don't have an, a multicultural curricula. It isn't part of the theological agenda, the training clergy. So in reality, we're struggling to mm-hmm. develop this tradition within our churches and ensuring that our ministers are trained. And hence, that's why I've um, you know, sidestepped the church and gone straight to the media uh, and developed um, an agenda uh, for Black liberation theology through television programs, through radio programs, through popular music, because the church was left behind. So yeah. it would seem to me, the second thing is that we have to look at a dialogue maybe between our theological institutions. How can we at Queen's, and that's why I said, I think what you said is a challenge. How can we support the work that you're doing through training and education and working mm-hmm. with the clergy who have got a desire to do this kind of work? And I would say my, you know, my door is open to that kind of collaboration and development because, again, we, we share a, a history uh, in terms of British colonialism, in terms of missionary complicity with racial hierarchy. And also, you know, as a Jamaican, we're indebted to the Mau Mau. You know, it was the Mau Mau who inspired many of the Black liberation movements across the Caribbean. The Rastafarians uh, embodied, you know, it was mimesis, they copied the Mau Mau aesthetic oh. because they felt that was a symbol of black liberation. So they also combined it with the Nazarite vow, you know, of not combing mm-hmm. your hair, you know, so it worked mm-hmm. quite well with them in terms of the look. But mm-hmm. so, so, yeah, I think that's something we should look at developing as an ongoing project. How do we help resource each other with knowledge and ideas so that we mm-hmm. can strengthen both the British context and the context in, uh, in Africa and in Kenya in particular? Yeah, because I think when with all the conversations I've had with pastors, it's the justice conversation feels very strange, and it's uh, and I make it a point that we read straight and direct from scripture to show them 
this is not something new that I'm picking from from anywhere. It is script, but because all the years of training they've had, some have never had training, never seen justice as something that they can do and so we have we have a job to do we have a call to fulfill have uh, we have places to go in terms of uh taking people into back into scripture back completely. into this yeah into completely completely and I, th I think again i think you know one one of the few benefits of the lockdown is that we've come to realize how easy it is to connect across the internet, across using uh, these kind of communication platforms. And maybe that will be one good thing that comes out of this that will be more accessible to each other as a consequence, and that we mm -hmm. can look at ways in which we can explore resources, educational resources, and train the clergy that you have in your context and, and conversely allowing their voices and their experiences to feed back into what our students and our lecturers are, are, are teaching and thinking within the UK context. So I'm very much open to that kind of collaboration going forward. Awesome. We'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep talking and we'll keep teaching and we'll keep faithful to the full gospel of Jesus that says um, our the name Singi is justice and righteousness, the foundation Throne. It comes from Psalms 89.14, and if the foundation has been speaking about righteousness, then it means that the work that we are doing is to make the foundation, uh, it's talking to King Spirit and knowing that um, I, I find these conversations very fulfilling because I am like, yep, you're not the only crazy in the world, we are alone, <laughs> many of us. <laughs> Thank you, and um, it's an honor to have to conversation. My pleasure. And My I pleasure. I know you will be back. Definitely, definitely. Maybe once the book is out, I'd be more than happy to come back and talk about decolonizing gospel music and um, sharing that with your listeners. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. If you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, remember to follow us on social media at Msingi Trust, share this podcast with your friends and family, and also consider making a donation to support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at msingikenya, or through M-Pesa plus 254-792-176-030. Kwaherini, and thank you for joining us.